Hi everybody, I hope this finds you all safe and well as we plough on through this what seems to be never-ending lockdown. Hopefully we'll get some news next week about, you know, at least a slight step towards things being relaxed um, safely, obviously. But in the meantime, though, we have all this amazing entertainment um, around us that we can dive into, which is a good thing, I think. I've been watching so many great films. The kids and I just watched the latest episode of WandaVision at lunchtime there. So, you know, I think if nothing else, it's providing us with a wonderful escape from from real life at the minute. And I hope this podcast as well gives you a little bit of time to just lose yourself for, you know, for the time and the length of each episode. Um, It is my absolute saving grace. And I have loved and I'm very thankful and grateful that I've been able to keep this going throughout um, lockdown over the past year. So yeah, and I thank you guys for listening as well. Our latest guest on Soundtracking is American playwright and film and theatre director George C. Wolfe. What a legend he is. However, it's with certain sadness that we welcome George to the show as his latest offering, the fantastic Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, also happens to be Chadwick Boseman's last performance before his passing. But what a performance it is. He and Viola Davis put on a virtuoso show as the eponymous blues singer and the trumpeter in her band. It's available to watch on Netflix now so you can see for yourself why it landed numerous award nominations and has received widespread critical acclaim. Marady's Black Bottom was scored by Branford Marsalis and it's with one of his cues that we begin Chicago at Sunset. Now just before we start though I wanted to say that we've been and as I said at the beginning, very lucky with the sound for the 50-odd remote recordings that we've done during lockdown. Uh, but due to the vagaries of Zoom, George is a little distant during the interview. And we hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment too much, as he really is a wonderfully engaging character. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so excited to get to chat to you about um, about film and music and and this this new film. The fantastic opportunity to to dive into to have pictures and music and the the relationship between those two is so important. Congratulations on Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It is a beautifully rich, emotional, and entertaining piece of work. 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I really would love to kind of find out where how this story came to you, how it was presented to you, this project. Uh, um, Denzel Washington and I were going to be uh, working on a Broadway show together. And, and it may have happened before then, because I don't really recall. That or I think the first time he, he mentioned that he wanted me to direct our rank. So, because he had made a commitment to to film all of August Wilson's work, and so while we were talking about doing this Eugene O'Neill play, he mentioned, you know, that he wanted me to do I do he wanted me to do my rainies, and so that's that's where I think the first time we talked, but I could be wrong about that i mean there's there's so many wonderful stories even just within that that kind of you know short explanation but but for you what was it about this about ma and this story and these characters that that you you saw the kind of visual interpretation of of that story because the visuals in this are extraordinary oh well, thank you thank you i i well first i was drawn to the fact that ma was aware acutely aware of her own talent her own power she was unapologetic about who she was. She wrote and wrote songs about being a lesbian. Uh, so there was this woman historically who, who was like this sort of ferocious, you know, commanding artist. And, and a lot of times artists have the reputations for being temperamental and crazy because of their insecurities or their damage or all of that. But here was somebody who wasn't temperamental. She was demanding because she knew her worth. And that I found really sort of thrilling. You know, I, in my family, there were a number of very strong women that I grew up with. So in some respects, this was my homage to them. <laughs> um, and then I'm sort of, part of me is, I think, perpetually bound to the 1920s. Uh, because it was such an extraordinary creative and political and and uh, and cultural awakening time period, and so 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 that was also a part of that. And because um, I've done a number of projects, and I keep on being pulled back to the twenties, so all of that felt very exciting. And then I started to dig into the material, and then you know August has written this ten play cycle. This is the only play that isn't set in Pittsburgh. It's the only play that doesn't focus in on family dynamics. It's the only one that's, that has mm-hmm. LBGTQ character. It's the only one that's based on a famous person. So the so this oddness within the rest of the cycle, yeah. I found really fascinating and really interesting. Does the common added responsibility when it is you're, you're telling someone's existing story, you know, in terms of that person, you know, was a real person? Well, you know, I, I think there's a buffer between us, which is someone, i.e. August Wilson, has already done his version of that. So I'm doing his version of her. And then I'm researching as much as I can up specifically about her. And then I'm working with a brilliant, you know, artist in the form of Viola Davis, who's also going to dig in, you know, and every and I'm surrounded by, you know, incredibly skilled craftspeople who were, everybody worked so hard to get mm. to the truth. The, you know, the, the woman who made her horsehair wig and she made it in putting horsehair strand by horsehair strand. I think she even got the horsehair from England. When she got it, it had manure and lice in it. 
So, no. Yes. So she had to uh, boil it in hot water. We softened it. And then she put the wig, made the wig, you know, horsehair strand by horsehair strand. And, and because Ma Rainey had a horsehair wig, because that's what they were making wigs out of at that time period. You know, so it was, so everybody, everybody was digging in to get at the truth, to get at the truth, to get at the truth. The actors, yeah. but, you know, the person making the wig, the person doing the makeup, the person, you know what I mean? Everybody was so invested in getting at the thing. Yeah. Did you know much about Ma before, before, you know, you, you started talking about this project? Were you, were you, how aware were you of her, of her story? I was sort of, um generally aware i you i knew that she, I, I knew that she was an out lesbian i knew some of her songs i know that she i knew that she traveled around she had tent shows and 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 a number of facts like that what i did not know is that she owned two theaters in georgia and i was working and during research i got a list of her touring schedule for 1926 and it had like 30 stops in, on it. So this woman, wow. most throughout the South, you know, and so we all have our connotations of what, what the Southern United States was like in the 20s with lynchings and the Jim Crow laws. Yeah. She built a showbiz empire. And, and I'm from the South. I'm not, you know, I'm not from Georgia. I'm from Kentucky. But, you know, because of segregation, people had to create their own structures. I remember at one point I drove my father back to his hometown and I was, we were driving through the town. It's a tiny little town. And he and his sister were going, you know, and they were both probably in their 70s. And they, as we mm -hmm. were driving around, she was going, that's where the ballroom was. And that's where Dr. So-and-so's office was. And that's where the dentist's office was. And she was naming, she was pointing to these empty lots, but she was naming all of these black businesses. So because, you know, because segregation, you know, the laws were saying, get the hell away from us. And so all these Black people built up a community and built up a support system, built up structures, and, and were supporting mm -hmm. each other and supporting their community. And Ma was doing the exact same thing. So I found all of that really thrilling and inspiring. And um, and I know all sorts of stories, but the more I dug into her, the more I realized, oh, she's, she's you know, she's a showbiz entrepreneur. Yeah, in the, in the 20s as well, in terms of, how she was able to position herself there as a black woman is absolutely extraordinary. It was extraordinary and not extraordinary. Yeah. Because people yeah. were doing it, you know, you know, yeah. the, the, the first, the first woman millionaire, I think that well, millionaire was this woman named Madam CJ Walker, who invented this, you know, this, the straightening comb and, and, and stuff that you did for your hair. And she, and her, her energy was about, was not just the invention, but then training young Black women to then go out and sell her products all yeah. in North and South America. So it was about entrepreneurship and being self-sufficient and being powerful and being in command of your existence. So it was really, so that energy that Ma had, it was, it was an energy that was cursing throughout the Black community at the time because... You know, every every generation believes they're going to shatter all the problems, right? and then they come into opposition, and then the next generation comes along and says, "No, I'm going to shatter all the problems," <laughs> and you know, and that's and that's how progress is made. Yeah, I feel like this could almost have been the first of a, a whole collection of of films about Ma, just in terms of 
how rich her story is Absolutely. and you know how, how rich her life is and viola's performance is it's full to the brim of emotion and and characterization it's so fantastic to watch oh great well, um, thank you. i totally agree i totally agree yeah, unfortunately, there's, you know, the, what the, you know, the film is set in 1927, and after 1928, she never recorded again. You know, Shame. so it is toward the end of her career. And the thing which was really interesting, when I was in post, I found out because I because I went digging, <laughs> and my assistant went digging. There are a total of seven pictures of her in existence on the planet. Seven total. Oh my god! Unless there's some hidden in somebody's basement or attic. Seven. Yeah, that's them. That's the that's the album. Wow. Would Viola kind of go from them? Because, and I, I want to get onto music in a second because obviously the 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 music in this is is brilliant and and it's got so many jobs and and purposes within the film as well. But 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 with that, where did where did Viola start with regards to to that performance of of Mad? You know, because you know we know that Viola Davis is one of the world's greatest yes. performers. But this is almost another, you know, she, she she just keeps surprising us with, not that we don't know she can do it, we know she can do it, but but just surprises us with the extent of these performances that she brings up time and time again. And this is another another great example of that. And so she, 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 did enough, she, she did a lot of research. She read, you know, there's a finite amount of information, you know, about Ma. There, there's, a, there's X number of interviews where people talk about Ma and talk about what yeah. kind of performer she was and what kind of human being she was. So she dug into all of that. One of the early conversations that she and I had via uh, internet was she was, you know, one of the things that she, was, she, she, that she was talked about was the wear and tear of having to perpetually fight to get what you deserve. And, 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 and that, was a, that was the thing that she spoke about. And also she spoke about that it was that, that you know, she, she taught Bessie Smith, her and Bessie Smith were by all accounts lovers, although allegedly I was told to say, as opposed to saying that they were lovers, <laughs> you know, but that by this time in her, in their, in her career, Bessie had usurped her. Bessie was a more popular figure. Mm. You know, Bessie did the East Coast tour. So she would travel along the East Coast, ending up in New Jersey and in New York. So, so white intellectuals, you know, Carl Van Vechten had a party, you know, at, at his house in which Gershwin and all the leading cultural figures were there. And Bessie got, this is Fabister, where Bessie got drunk and ended up punching out someone, but, but she, <laughs> but these, you know, but, but she was surrounded by leading cultural figures of the day, yeah. white cultural figures. So they knew about her. Maud never, I don't, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm completely correct in this. I don't think she ever journeyed to New York. I don't think she was a part of the Harlem landscape. I, so I think so. So therefore, you know, there were articles in Vanity Fair about Bessie Smith. There were none about Ma Rainey. And also yeah. people considered her, she was considered not attractive. She didn't have glamour the way mm. someone like Bessie Smith had glamour. So, yeah. you know, all of that. Yeah, all of that. When it came to, you know, because these are these are your cast is extraordinary and the, the way that they have to perform as musical performers and the preparation that goes into that you know uh, viola extraordinary 
we'll, we'll talk about Chadwick's performance in, in a second as well. But what is, what's the prep that, I mean, do you speak to them in advance in terms of how they prepare for that side of it in terms of, you know, they're going to be performing within a performance almost in a way? Well, you know, I, you know, I, they were informed that they were going to have to play music and play instruments. They, they didn't didn't necessarily have to play them, but they needed to behave and act as if they were in command of them because they are a very seasoned band. So they were given tutors to work with. Um, Bradford Marticellus said that Michael Potts, who played slow drag, showed up and he was sort of perfect. So he didn't have to bother, like he he had mastered it. And it, he could wow. And then, um, but they all had tutors. Uh, Coleman, who plays Cutler, and and um, Glenn Charman, who also who, who plays Toledo. Toledo, you know? yeah. And and Chadwick, when one of our early conversations that he and I had, he wanted the exact fingering for every single song. And 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 I told Bradford, and he went, "Really?" I said, "Yes." So <laughs> he had someone send him fingering for every single song, and Chadwick mastered the fingering for every single song, you know, his, his pitch wasn't great. I played trumpet badly for eight years, <laughs> but, but he could, he, he mastered it and they just worked really, really very hard and, and they became a band in their own way. Mm. Hello Central, give me 609. What it takes to get it in these hips of mine. Oh, you hear me talking to ya. I don't bite my tongue. You wanna be my man? You better bring it with you when you come. You wanna be my man? Bring it with you when you come. I mean, the, the way that his instrument's almost like, a, you know, he, the way he caresses that instrument as he's walking through scenes and having conversations, it's, you know, it's constantly connected to him. It's like a child. It's like, a, it's like an extra limb. It's just it's part of his being. And that's the way he was. And that's the way he was on set. That he was, that's the way he was on set. When between takes, he'd have that, he'd have that horn out. He'd be holding it. He'd be. You know, he'd have he'd have the mouthpiece up to his mouth. It was he he formed a very 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 intimate relationship with it as well. So it's it was built into his performance absolutely. Big black. 
You mentioned uh, Bram from Asalis, who's your, who you know, composer and and musical maestro on this uh, on, on this film. You know, and part of a massive musical family as well. What what's that conversation that you have, or that decision making process on who you're going to work with when it comes to music, and particularly with this film? Um, you know, it, there was a special certain requirement in terms of it wasn't just a case of creating score for the film as well. There was a lot more needed and required um, for the music side of well, it. Well, this is the second film that Bramford and I, I, I did together. I, we, we did a film called Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks for HBO. And so that was the first time we had worked together. We knew each other. I think around the time when I first moved to New York, he was he would first move to New York. So we were traveling in different circles, but we you know, knew of, knew of each other and then, but, but, uh, but Henrietta Lacks was the first time we worked together and we had a great collaboration and we got along really well. And he's like this incredible, he's a, mu he's a brilliant musician, a brilliant composer, an astonishing musicologist and a, and a historian. So, I mean, you know, recently I was considering doing a project you know, that, that I ended up not doing. But, you know, it, when I was thinking about it, I called up Branford and I said, uh, you know, I'm thinking about doing this thing that's sort of, it's blues-based, it's, but it's, what's the difference between Georgia and what was going on in Mississippi and what was going on? And I just asked him these general questions and like literally sort of 15 minutes later, he sent me like 30 files of- wow. This is this, this is that, this is that. <laughs> and so he's just, you know, and then I was on the phone with him and then he, and he was explaining what was going on with this and this and, you know, so he's like, it's just there. It's not even, it isn't history to him. It's, it's intimate. Kind of the the score has got to 
it's got to have a beautiful marriage with the performances that are happening within yeah. you know they, they it, can't, it can't jolt it's yeah. got to have fluidity with it and Absolutely. stuff and that's you know that's what was that a case of then you deciding on the final what the final score cues would be and and, and shooting those performances and and in an edit and and then Branford seeing what would work texturally, I guess, or or had you already kind of made those decisions on on the music and the tone and the the themes and things like that as well? Before I started filming, yeah, no, yeah, no, I mean, no, not really. You know, my, the, the the focus was primarily making sure that the performances that that the performance that the musical performances or the or the look of the musical performances were as flawless as they could be. And then once I started editing, then I went when when I started editing and shaping and putting it together. That's when uh, he and I started talking. We we had preliminary conversations about finding Levy's sound. would his sound be because you know you, you have a full range of, of music that's going on you have jelly Rob morton is in chicago at the exact same time that ma Rainey. at the exact and simultaneously you have duke ellington performing at the cotton club and that level of sophistication and harmonics and an urban sound and so all of these all of these incredibly brilliant musicians and then you have you know the white musicians who who are finding themselves, you know, finding themselves inside the rhythm of the, the rhythms of jazz and blues, and in some mm -hmm. cases, like Paul Whiteman, they're sanitizing it. You know, there was there was this dynamic that was going on about this music, which was giving America its first sense of identity that was that was not so heavily dominated by European, by a European aesthetic. And so yeah. that's one of the things that I think is so really interesting and fascinating to me about the 20s. And so, so just talking about all of that with Branford and trying to find that Chicago sound versus all these guys are also from the South. So that therefore, when they start telling stories, what is that music? And so just finding, finding having this vast vocabulary that was available to us from the 20s, but and also mining that that vocabulary. Very early on the editing process, I've discovered this drummer named Baby Dodds, who who was this 20s jazz drummer, and which is so interesting because I was so startled to find it because you know it's very rare because then there are jazz drummers from the 30s and the 40s galore, but finding someone from the 20s who was capturing that sound mm -hmm. and and 
And so that was thrilled. I found that thrilling. And then, of course, when I talked to Bradford about it, he knew everything about that baby dog. But, <laughs> but it, you know, it was just just digging in and exploring mm-hmm. it and talking with him and doing my own digging to try to figure, put, put those rhythms inside of my body as well. So that therefore it was informing my editing so that those rhythms were informing in some, in some respects how I was editing the scenes, even though the score was to come later. George, it feels like there's a documentary almost in the making of this film in terms of the, you know, what you discovered along the way because yeah. this, it feels like a beautiful kind of, you know, for us as film and music fans, well, wow, there's so much in the film, like these layers that you talk about and how the music for me, I really sort of saw was the... The, it was the way of expression, you know. It was the it was for some. It was the only way of expression, yeah, you know, and, and being able to to be very true the, the the place and the thing that they could be the truest to themselves with. It, it's so very interesting because one one of the things that I love about the blues is, you know, there were X number of black newspapers who were chronicle which were chronicling, you know, the black experience in this country. But it, but but the, but it wasn't in history books, and it wasn't, and it was occasionally, but rarely, in mainstream white newspapers. So the blues became the place where history was stored. You know, yeah. there would be blues songs about the flood that passed through. There would be blues songs about the Titanic and the Lusitania. <laughs> Walked out to the front 
blues musicians were chronicling the world in their yeah. music. So a lot of times when you when you go back and you dig into blues lyrics, you find the history of the time. When I was I, I did the show about Jelly Roll Morton, and and I found this song. I'm going to get it wrong, but it's uh, it, you know I'm, it was like 219 took my baby away. 219 took my baby away. 807 going to bring him back someday. They're talking about <laughs> trains. <laughs> The names of trains. It. Yeah. It just, it just, there's so much, there's so much, you know, there's so much history and story and detail in the, in, yeah. in, the, in, in that, you know, and, and where did, where did that person go on that train and the train that's going to bring him back? Where is that coming from? It's, there's so much truth embedded in blues lyrics. And that's why I love them so much. 219 done took my baby away. Two nineteen took my babe away. Two seventeen bring her back someday. I could talk to you for hours, sir. You're just so so wonderful, and I it would be great to talk in the future at some point as well. Just about your kind of, you know, your work in the theatre and how that, you know, how that differs in terms of of working for. A, film or, t- or tv as well and particularly when it comes to music if it's a if it's a different approach if it's a different um thought process uh, as well but um i i can't thank you enough for, for Mar rainy it's just a, a wonderful you know on on the surface level it's a, a beautiful entertaining film to watch but there is there is so much bedded within it as well that that reveals itself when you luxuriate in it thank you thank you um it's uh it's so great to chat to you and uh and yeah thank you so much for your time george thank you the score to Mar Rainey's Black Bottom, that's L Train by Bran for Marsalis, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with George C. Wolfe. My huge thanks to George for taking the time to talk to me. Mar Rainey's Black Bottom is available to watch on Netflix now and is worth it for so many things, including that fantastic music, not to mention Viola and Chadwick's performances. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes. My website is also the place to subscribe to the pod and find links to 
Spotify playlist for every show in which we put the songs we feature in the order they appear so that you can listen to them in full. A lovely way to celebrate the music for each episode, so please do go and have a listen to that too. Uh, also, if you aren't already, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And do keep telling everyone you know about us if you like what you hear. Uh, I also put together a regular little YouTube show uh, after some technical problems. The latest is out now with Sophia Coppola, Jenna Coleman and Tessa Thompson. So please head over to YouTube and just search for Soundtracking with Edith Bowman. We'll be back next week with more conversation around film and music. In the meantime, stay safe, look after each other, and I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.